All right, with you. you grab seats, please. All right, while you're, uh, while you're sitting down, this may change where you sit. I'm not sure. Um, how many of you, like, hate those, I think you call them thousand-legger things with those long legs and all that kind of stuff stuck everywhere? Any, any of you deathly afraid of them? Okay. You see up there in that corner? You see that little bug up there? <laughs> um, that's one. So for those of you afraid, I know what you're going to be watching the whole time. So if that thing moves and people start leaving, then I, I know why. Anyway, so um, anybody want to move now? So, okay, all right. That has nothing to do with anything we're going to talk about, but I, I, I was watching that while we were singing and thinking, wondering what, what was going on. Anyway, so, um, so let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. God, I thank you that you made a promise to be with your people. And so we are absolutely confident that uh, you are never away from us. You never abandon us. You're never busy. You're never distracted. You're never asleep. But you're, you're constantly with us. Whether we know that or recognize it or not, you are. And, and thank you. God, I also believe that you made a promise to be with us in a, in a unique way when we're together. And God, again, whether we recognize that or not, uh, you, you are, you're present, and you've been here present with us, and you'll continue to be, and, and I'm grateful. God, I know and trust that you're also present when we pay attention to your word. And God, for those of us who teach it and who are responsible for communicating it, God, there is a burden that we feel, and there is a sense in which we want to be as faithful and as accurate and as truthful as we can be with your word that impacts, God, how we study and pray about what we do when we teach. Father, I know, however, that it's also possible, it's also likely that we often will say things that we believe are true but they may not be, and we might be wrong sometimes. So God, I'm going to pray, and I will trust that if I say anything that isn't true from your word, or if I'm wrong in, in any account, I'm grateful that I can trust that through your spirit, you won't let anybody here be influenced the wrong way. God, I am also so grateful that when we get to teach your word, that your spirit is at work within all of us and you're doing your business in our lives in such a way that we're being transformed over a lifetime. You're changing us to align ourselves with who you are and what you're like and what your word reveals. So I thank you, God, that you've done that and are continuing to do that in my life, and I pray that you'll do that in the lives of others this morning as we talk about uh, your word, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I don't know if anybody, any of you saw this, but um, on July 4th of just this week, um, the, the Morning Call did a full-page uh, reprint of the Declaration of the United States. Um, that's a copy of the original one, but um, they did a full-page uh, reprint of the Declaration of the United States um, 
on uh, July 4th, and it really is. Um, I, I've read it before, but I took the time to, to read it again. It really, really is just an incredible document, um, that declaration. Um, it's, uh, uh, I think it's a one-of-a-kind document. And that second paragraph in the declaration, sometimes we think of this as the first, but it's actually the second paragraph. It just is, it's just a majestic uh, paragraph. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think for a 243-year-old document, there, there's just really, there's nothing like, like it in the world. We all know who the author is. We all know um, Thomas Jefferson. We know him to be a, a man with a stunningly brilliant and inventive mind, an exceptionally rare gift with words. Um, I don't know if you know this, but to Jefferson, we're not only indebted to him for the Declaration of Independence, but also... Uh, he really is the guy behind the whole ideal of religious liberty, freedom of religion. Um, he's also the guy behind um, the idea of universal education. Um, it was Jefferson who championed the idea that uh, territories in the United States, uh, that one day they would have the possibility of becoming equal states, uh, because at the time, almost everybody else, else thought that the, quote, the mother country or the 13 original colonies would, would rule from a position of superiority if other states joined the union. But Jefferson said, no, every state that joins will join on an equal basis. And he was behind that idea. So this guy was just, just a master of ideas. And, and I think we remain in his debt to this day, and I think we should be grateful to Jefferson for his ideas. But we also all know the uh, sinister irony of Jefferson. Uh, he was a guy who owned other human beings. And brilliant and as gifted as he was, to be flat out honest with you, when it comes to his personal life, Jefferson was not a great person in his personal life. Uh, he had a slave, slave, slave mistress, and he lied about it all of his life. He um, actually tried to bribe a reporter who had found out his dirty little secret. Um, historically, through his lifetime, Jefferson lived above his means financially and was in deep debt all of his life. Um, the things that he said and wrote about his slaves were an embarrassment, even in his own day. And some of his friends, like John Adams, called him on it or attempted to. And we're pretty critical of Jefferson for his attitude towards his slaves. Um, and Je Adams, among others, said to Thomas Jefferson, uh, the revolution that you helped to start will never be finished until your slaves are free and equal. Um, there were other, some other significant moral issues on which Jefferson was actually on the wrong side of history. The treatment of Native Americans, for example, was already an issue during the time of Thomas Jefferson. But Jefferson had no positive idea of what to do, so he just kind of threw up his hands and passed. Um, women's rights, believe it or not, were also an issue. And uh, a woman named Abigail Adams, the wife of John Adams, um, who at one time was a very close friend of Jefferson, was prodding Jefferson also on the issue of women's rights. But he chose to just ignore her, and he said so. Um, so the truly great perplexing irony is that um, here's a guy who actually knew better. 
Um, it's wrong. It is wrong to say that he was a product of his times. He was not. Um, he knew better. Um, he said in his lifetime that he considered slavery to be, in his word, abhorrent. He called slavery a despotism, and he said it brutalized the slave, the slave owner, children, and everybody involved were brutalized by the system. But frankly, for financial reasons, Jefferson chose to profit from slavery. Bottom line is he simply did not have the moral courage to do what he himself knew to be right. So he said, I'll just leave it to the next generation to abolish slavery. Brilliant, brilliant mind, gifted with words, stellar political achievements for which you and I should truly be grateful, but limited moral character. And the truth is, we elect men and women with the same perplexing mix to high office all the time. Um, quite a few, quite a few we elect to the highest office. So for some reason, we seem to do some math in our heads. Jefferson did it. And the math is we choose to trade an ideal for something lesser that we want. In this past week, while searching the Bible for some definition of freedom, I found a remarkable story, a remarkable account in which some people made this exact same trade, trading something greater for something lesser that they wanted. So I'm going to read this account, and then we're going to talk about freedom. Um, the account comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm actually going to read the whole chapter. And I think you probably need to know that when I read this account, that this account comes from a particularly ugly time in the history of Israel. Um, this comes at a time when the country of Israel was, was tribal. They weren't really a nation yet. They were a loosely organized affiliation of tribes. They were ruled by family leaders in these tribes called elders. And historically, at this particular time, the people of Israel were on this cycle in which they kept abandoning God for the glitz and the uh, freedom of sexual perversions that came with idol worship. And so the people of Israel would spiral over and over. They'd spiral hopelessly away from God, but God kept reaching them and calling them back in his process of forming a young nation. And he called Israel back repeatedly through men and women that we call judges. Uh, there's a book about these men and women in the Bible, the book of Judges. Now Samuel, for whom this book is named, Samuel was the last great judge. And in chapter 8, Samuel is nearing the end of his life, and the Israelites have now grown weary of this cycle, and they've decided that they want something new. So here's the story from 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll read the whole chapter. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But the sons were not like the father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. 
Look, they told him, you're now old and your sons are now like you. Give us a king to lead us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king, saying, This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will take your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers and make them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel, Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. So then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. So what they want is a king. Now, um, historically, this isn't that much of a surprise. Um, In in the book that just precedes this, or uh, earlier in history, there were times when the Israelites said over and over, they said, we want a king. Um, In Judges chapter 8, there's a judge named Gideon, a very strong, powerful warrior king, and after a particular victory, the people went to Gideon and said, Gideon, we want you to be our king. And in Judges chapter 8, Gideon said, no, never. The Lord is our king. Um, so to be honest, uh, it's not a new request that they want a king. In fact, I actually think if you kind of read through the history of the Old Testament, I think that the idea of a king was always in the cards for the people of Israel you could rewind the clock, you could go back to the beginning when God was actually making promises to Abram and Sarah and saying to Abram, I'm going to give you a nation. Even in God's promises to Abram in Genesis chapter 17, God actually promised Abram, he said, from you will come many kings. So even from the very beginning, there's that sense in which kings were in the cards. Then there's a whole bunch of other episodes where kings were, were somewhat predicted for Israel. I think maybe one of the most significant times when you, you gain a sense of the fact that God knew that kings were in the cards um, is in Deuteronomy chapter 17 when um, 
Moses is giving to the people all of the laws that would form them as a nation. This is in the very beginning. He's giving them the laws for a nation. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's actually a group of laws that were intended for future Israelite kings. And since that episode, the giving of that law is hundreds of years before 1 Samuel chapter 8, it seems that God was always anticipating the fact that at some point Israel will be ruled by kings. So the problem is not, you can't fall in the trap of thinking that the problem is the fact that they wanted a king. A king was always in the cards. Um, It's not the fact that they wanted a king. The problem is the kind of king that they wanted. When the people said to Samuel, and they actually said it two times, when the people said to Samuel um, in chapter 8, in verses 5 and 20, when they said, we want a king, What they said both times is, we want a king like the other nations have. It's a certain kind of king they're looking for. And I think to understand that, you have to know that the word in in that sentence, when they said like the other nations have, the word is goyim for nations. And that word goyim ultimately comes into our language as the word Gentile or not Jews. So what the Israelites were saying to Samuel and to God is, we want a king like the Gentiles have. We want a king who will lead us. We want a king who will fight our battles for us. Which is exactly why God, in what I read for you, God said to Samuel, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. Um, It's me. He said, it's me. I think to understand that, I think you need to know that from the very beginning, what God was attempting to do with the Jewish people was to create a nation, an entire nation, who would be a reflection of his image to the rest of the world. That was his goal. God was always attempting to create a, a people who would be the, you know, the city, the shining city on a hill. That was the dream, to create a people that was a reflection of, of him to the whole world. I think you also need to understand that not only was God attempting to create a a nation of people who would reflect him, when it came to some of the specifics, for example, when it came to the issue of of fighting wars or defending themselves, God had actually said to Israel, guys, if you're faithful to me, you don't have anything to worry about because I will fight for you. I will fight your battles. And time and time and time again, he did over and over. In fact, we're not going to do this now, but if we're in 1 Samuel 8, if you just backtrack one chapter, just go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, all you need to do is look at how God in 1 Samuel 7 um, subdued the Philistines in a really remarkable and spectacular way. But Israel was saying now, Israel was saying, God, we don't want that anymore. We don't want you as our king. We want a king like the Gentiles have. We want him to lead us, not you. We want him to fight our battles, not you. I don't know how you respond to that, but let's just be honest. Um, Faith is very, very hard, it just is. It takes a whole lot of courage to have faith. 
So the Israelites, when they reject God, are simply saying, God is just too hard to have faith. It just isn't what we want. Because the truth is that faith is not just holding a set of particular beliefs. Faith is a way of living. And the Israelites were smart enough to know that having faith in God meant more than just that they were able to call on God like a magic genie and get them out of spectacular problems in remarkable ways. They knew that if they were going to have faith in God, it required a certain lifestyle. They knew that if they were going to have faith, it would require of them obedience and it would require of them loyalty. It, it just always does. It always does. Faith in any particular relationship requires a certain lifestyle. It isn't just what you believe, it's what you do. Try being faithless to your bowling buddies or your carpool comrades or your coworkers or your boss or your friends or your kids or your spouse. Try being faithless in any relationship and see how well that works. If you routinely break faith, a relationship can't survive. So faith or trust is simply the glue that holds together all the parts of a relationship. And there's no other way for a relationship to work and to last. And ever since God was dealing with a pair of fledgling human beings and he said to them, guys, everywhere you look, everything you see, it's all yours, it's all yours, but just don't eat from that one tree over there. Trust me on this. Ever since day one, God has been operating on a system of faith and trust with human beings. But the bottom line is faith is hard. Faith takes courage. And they didn't want it anymore. So they said, give us a king like the Gentiles have. And he will lead us. And he will fight our battles. And so God said, okay. A king like the Gentiles you shall have. But first, God said, let me spell out the bargain that you are making. And then he did. And Samuel explained. And there's a word in his explanation that is key. It's the actual theme to that whole paragraph. In English, it's a very mediocre word. In English, it's the word take. Just a mediocre word. In Hebrew, it's a much stronger word. In Hebrew, it's the word lacha. And it means more than just take. It has overtones of tyranny to it. So Samuel spelled out the bargain that they're making, and Samuel said, beware, a king will be a taker. He will take your sons. They will die on his battlefields for him. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take your vineyards. He will take your olives groves. He will take your grain. He will take your grapes. And he will use all of this for himself and to give to his best friends. 
He will take your servants, your finest cattle. He will take your donkeys. He will take your flocks. And at the end of all of his taking, he will take you. And you will be his slaves. Nothing will be beyond the king's reach. Is this what you want? And they said, yes, it's what we want. So in the very next chapter, you just flip the page, one, page, one chapter, and God gives them a king. And as promised, the kings become takers. There's a very famous story, um, one that leads to just terrible disaster in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 21, when King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they took a vineyard belonging to a man named Naboth, leads to all kinds of ugliness. One of Israel's greatest kings, David, took for himself Bathsheba, a woman who belonged to one of his most loyal soldiers. David's son, Solomon, for all of his wisdom, took so much and enriched himself so much and was so oppressive in his taking that when he died and his reign ended and his son was about to be king, the people went to him and begged, please lighten our load. Your father was so oppressive. Lighten our load. And the son refused which led directly to a civil war and the division of the kingdom from which Israel never recovered. So when it comes to taking, it took all of three kings. Three kings. Saul, David, and Solomon for the taking to have disastrous consequences. So I suppose the obvious question is, why, oh, why did they make such a disastrous choice? Why surrender your freedom for this? Well, that's a good question. What the Israelites wanted was power, political influence, and most importantly, security. They were a loosely affiliated collection of tribes at this particular time. They were not a player in the world of power. They had no standing army. They had no particular political influence. And most of all, in their minds, because they had no power, no political influence, they had absolutely no security. The only security they had came from faith. And faith is hard. So they said, we will trade our freedom for security. And in the end, they got neither and lost both. You know, it's really remarkable to me when kind of Googling and trying to figure this stuff out and pondering this trade of freedom for security to discover that President Franklin Roosevelt once said exactly the same thing, exactly the same, that trading security, trading freedom for security ends up with the loss of both. You ever heard of uh, 
President Roosevelt's four freedoms? Ever heard? Of, that's a real question. Okay, one Jim and I, so, um, uh, two of us. Yeah, um, I actually had heard of the four freedoms through Norman Rockwell's paintings, because we had a couple of them hanging in in our house, and more on that in a couple minutes. Uh, Roosevelt almost certainly got his idea of the four freedoms from the 1939 New York World's Fair, which had at its central theme the theme of four freedoms. Now, for them, the four freedoms were freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of, of, of assembly. And all of those are, are recognized and guaranteed in our Bill of Rights. But on January 6, 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave his State of the Union speech. Now, you need to know, just to put this in context so that we're all on the same page, in 1941, when Franklin Roosevelt gave his State of the Union, you need to know that the United States and the whole world actually was just recovering from, just beginning to come out of the Great Depression, which caused a level of poverty and despair in our country and around the world that honestly today we in our country just cannot imagine. We can't imagine. Plus, not only were we coming out of depression, in Europe and around the world, there was a terrible world war that was raging and just beginning to fire up. In June of 1940, just several months before the State of the Union, uh, Germany, Italy, and Japan had devastated most of Europe, parts of China, and another significant part of the world. And so across the ocean, England was left standing alone against the tyranny of Germany and Italy and Japan. In fact, 11 months after Roosevelt would give this speech, in December of 1941, Japan would attack Pearl Harbor and the U.S. would be drawn into World War II. But here we are, 11 months before that, in January of 1941, the United States had managed to remain isolated from the war, and most people wanted it that way. So Roosevelt spoke about four freedoms famously in his speech. Norman Rockwell made a painting for each one of these freedoms. Roosevelt spoke first about the freedom of speech, then he spoke about the freedom of worship. And both of those, the freedom of speech and worship, both of those are protected in the First Amendment of our Bill of Rights. But then Roosevelt added two others. He added freedom from want. And if you remember the context, the context of the Great Depression, it makes a whole lot of sense. And then Roosevelt finally spoke about the freedom from fear which again, if you remember the context of the horror of a world war that was just looming, it also makes sense. Now to be clear, Roosevelt wasn't arguing that these four freedoms were only for people within our borders, in the borders of the United States. In his speech, he said over and over that these four freedoms should serve all people everywhere. These were freedoms, he said, that all people of the world should enjoy. 
And he said, these four freedoms are under assault for people everywhere. The world is at great risk of losing them. Many of the people of the world have already lost these four freedoms, he said. Tyranny was winning. So wanting to bend the national will and encourage the people of the United States to want to be engaged in stopping the tyranny that was ongoing, Roosevelt quoted Ben Franklin, and he said, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty or safety. Roosevelt knew human beings very well. He knew we'd make a trade. He knew we'd be willing to make a trade, to trade something greater for something lesser, to trade away freedom for security, and he warned us about it. Now, why do we make this trade? Well, freedom, like faith, is very, very hard. In fact, I think the two actually go together, freedom and faith. In the same way they went to, together for the Israelites in Samuel's day, freedom and faith are somehow deeply connected, and they're both very hard. Which is why I suppose, I think Jesus was the most free man I have ever known. And he was free because of his faith. Jesus trusted his father completely. Jesus had faith in his father entirely. So he enjoyed a level of freedom most of us in this room only dream about. And he enjoyed that faith because of, he enjoyed that freedom because of the faith he had in his father. Jesus was completely free from worrying about what other people thought about him. Why worry about what other people think about me when I know exactly who I am according to the Father? Jesus was free from being bitter. Jesus was free from worry, from anxiety. Jesus was free from ever having to prove that he was smart enough, free from having to try to impress people with a witty response, it didn't matter to him. Because he was free from trying to prove he's smart enough, he was free to actually listen to people and engage them fully and pay attention and to just have a conversation without having to prove to them how smart he was. He was free from worrying about how he looked. He was free from worrying about people who threatened his safety or his life because he trusted the Father completely. 
He was free to experience real joy and real peace and real hope. Jesus was free to sleep well every night. Imagine. He was free from worrying about people who disagreed with him. He was free from worrying about what his friends were talking about, and maybe they're talking about me. He was free from having to impress. At a time when all of the governments of the world gave to human beings none of the four freedoms of Roosevelt, no freedom of speech, no freedom of religion, no freedom of want, no freedom of fear. Jesus had all of them, all of them. At a time when his own government acknowledged none of the freedoms in our Bill of Rights, Jesus enjoyed them all. He lived with more freedom than any of us. And that freedom came at a cost, the cost of his faith, the cost of saying, Father, I trust you with everything. This is the freedom that Jesus actually offers to us. It's real. And you can have it. But like all freedoms, there's a cost. And the cost for us is faith. Do I trust the same Father in heaven with my life that Jesus trusted? The way you do this is exactly the same way that Jesus did. You trust the Father in heaven with every moment, with every day, with every dime, with every decision. Jesus, for example, was tempted away from faith multiple times. People would come along and say, Jesus, you know, there's another way. Your God is very narrow, very foolish, very restrictive, very painful. Why trust him? And Jesus would say, no, I think I'll stick with him. Because faith isn't just a set of beliefs. It's loyalty and it's obedience. But joyful freedom is the result now, you can have the lesser if you want. Seems to be the way we lean as human beings, trading away the greater for the lesser. Trading away freedom for a little bit of supposed security, and we lose both. But the greater is always there. It's always there. Freedom is always there as a gift from a Father who is infinitely worthy of our faith. It's always offered. Trust me. Trust me. And the gift of freedom 
is there. So let's pray. God, um, I, I thank you for the freedoms that have been guaranteed to us in writing. Thank you, God, that scripturally reminded, we're reminded that those freedoms aren't just extended to people within certain borders and boundaries, but they're freedoms that really the whole world should enjoy. Father, I want to ask you to remind each of us that we suffer with the tendency to want away, to trade away the greater for the lesser. I pray, God, that you'd remind us uh, to do the hard thing, to be people of faith. And my prayer for me and for all of us is that in response that we enjoy the same kind of freedom enjoyed by Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.